Well, the passage that Nigel read to us is a great one, isn't it? John 21, verse 4 to verse 19, Peter's restoration. Now, the news of Jesus's resurrection is at the heart of the Christian belief. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes on to speak, really, the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And then crucially, he says he was seen. The reality of Jesus's resurrection is something that the Bible makes clear. And it needs to, because again, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. There is a sense where anyone could have gone to the cross saying the kinds of things that Jesus was saying. But the proof of all that he is saying and all that he claims is the news that he was raised on the third day and that he was seen. Resurrection becomes a wonderful thing for the Christian believer. It's the reminder that God offers us life, transforming life, and that there is hope for us, in, even in whatever the darkness and despair of sin may send our way. So the resurrection becomes the comfort for the Christian in death. Again, Jesus speaking in John 11, when he arrived at that little village of Bethany, Uh, after the news that his good friend Lazarus had died, he seeks to comfort Mary and Martha. And you remember what he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That is a great comfort to us, isn't it? Great comfort to the Christian facing death or living, as it were, under the shadow of death, maybe through some circumstance in your life or something like this. Now, one of the fascinating things, at least I find it fascinating, about the resurrection appearances is that they all take place within a deeply pastoral context. It's the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that the narrative, if you like, in the Gospels, the the part of the story when his resurrection from the dead is revealed, it doesn't come simply in a uh, a teaching context, in that general sense, it comes to people who are in real distress and real need. There's Mary stricken with grief and suffering deeply emotionally. And it is to her, first of all, that Jesus is revealed in his resurrection, a whole life transformed when he utters her name, Mary. And then, of course, there's Thomas with the disciples uh, hiding away and um, the disciples themselves are, are, are in that place of fear because of the Jews. The doors were locked uh, and into that sense of fear. Christ comes and his, uh, his opening words are peace be with you. It's a tremendous statement of acknowledgement of the distress that they're in, but also comfort the fact that he has been raised from the dead. And then with Thomas confused, bewildered, we could never get to the bottom probably of the the internal distress in Thomas. And then he reveals himself to Thomas again with those same words, peace be with you. Two on the road to Emmaus, Luke records that their faces were downcast. They're full of disappointment. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. 
the whole thing was full of expectation, but then he died, he was crucified, that's the end of it. We pack up, we go home. And yet he comes to them with the rebuke and the challenge, but also the comfort in the news that he's been raised from the dead. It's fascinating that the news of the resurrection comes first to distressed people. And it's a reminder of what Jesus has done on the cross and that the life that he now brings, he brings to us as sinners who've been broken by the effects of the fall, whose lives have been affected in many ways. Now, of all the pastoral applications, probably it is the appearance of Jesus to Peter, which is the most powerful and compelling. Peter's restoration is a marvelous moment where we actually see, as we do in all these resurrection accounts, what does the power of the resurrection look like in practice? I mean, in many ways, the power of the resurrection is a bit frightening, isn't it? It's power over death. It, the, probably the greatest thing that we fear most as human beings. But what does this power that can overcome death look like when it's unleashed? Well, the truth is when it's unleashed, it looks to repair, restore, rebuild and heal broken, chaotic sinners like Peter and like you and me. So let's look a little more closely this morning at this. Peter, as you know, superficially appears a very simple character, working class lad from Galilee, uh, often bold, brash, forthright, impulsive, demanding. It's Peter who draws a sword to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's a no-nonsense fisherman. They're either fish in the net or they're not. And he emerges in the Gospels as a clear leader amongst the disciples. And yet he is a godly man. His life is set on following Jesus Christ. Remember with the rich young ruler in confusion, really, Peter turns to Jesus and says, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And that is absolutely true of Peter and the other disciples. He is committed to following Christ. And of course, it is Peter who comes to that great understanding of who Jesus really is. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They give their different answers, don't they? Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And of course, it's Peter who answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus indicates that this was not revealed to you by man. You didn't work this out for yourself. Somebody around here didn't tell you this but my father in heaven did. It's a wonderful statement. So as Peter is a man who's a follower of Christ. He understands Jesus is the Messiah. There's something of the working of the Holy Spirit within him. And he is uniquely blessed. He's, the disciples were wonderfully blessed, weren't they? But amongst the disciples, Peter is uniquely blessed. Jesus took him with James and John up, uh, up a high mountain, and there Jesus is transfigured. And there he sees Moses and Elijah. That is a unique blessing. It's extraordinary. And Peter was right in the thick of it. So there is this wonderful picture that emerges in the Gospels of who this godly man is, this disciple, this follower of Jesus. But at the same time, we recognize that Peter, uh, and not just recognize, I think we relate to Peter because he is very much somebody who suffers from foot in mouth syndrome. 
John 13 in the upper room, having just washed the disciples' feet, Jesus begins to teach them. But as he does, he talks of going away. And Peter says, Lord, where are you going? What's what's all this? We've been together for three years. You know, Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter says to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? He has no concept of the cross and what's about to take place. I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus, of course, says to him, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And that happens very rapidly within the space of a few hours. Three times Peter is asked, do you know this man? Aren't you one of his disciples? Luke, in his account, records one saying, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even know who this Jesus is. What are you on about? He puts as much distance between him and Christ as he can in responding to that question. And then we're told, or rather Luke tells us, that as he was speaking those words, the cock crowed, and our Lord turned and looked straight at him. Peter remembered the words that the Lord had spoken to him, and Luke simply says he went outside and he wept bitterly. He wept for his Lord, but also he wept at his failure and inability to be the man he knew he wanted to be. Now, like Peter, we all know what it is to fail Lord Jesus. It's easy for us to be critical of Peter on a Sunday morning like this, but the reality is we see a great deal of ourselves in him. There are times perhaps in church when we're singing a hymn, remember those days, and we're those, we, 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 we hear an uplifting message and we think, Lord, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. I will serve you with everything that I have. We're willing to run through brick walls for Jesus. But then come Monday evening, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's a very different picture. And in those situations when the emotion has gone and the reality sets in, the problem it seems we're left with is the issue of who we really are compared to who we wish we were. And we feel shame and guilt, as Peter surely felt when the denial of Christ really bit home. And yet, in those situations, we can so easily write ourselves off. Maybe you feel that you've failed God. Maybe you had great ambitions to serve him. Maybe you made promises in the heat of the moment of things you would do for the Lord, and, and you failed to deliver. And you know, Shame can be so deep in us sometimes as Christians that we can really write ourselves off. We really can. You know, you look at the character of Peter after the three denials, and of course you know what's coming, but you also know further down the line there's the day of Pentecost. And I don't know about you, but you tend to think if you needed to choose a disciple after those three denials, to give him a broom at the end of the day of Pentecost and to sweep up the rubbish left behind by the crowd, it would be Peter. But of course, Peter is the one that the Holy Spirit uses to preach on the day of Pentecost. Though we write ourselves off, this restoration of Peter shows wonderfully 
that God is able to restore. He is able to heal and he is able to do wonderful things. Psalm 34 tells us the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Well, just before we look in detail at this passage, let me remind you of where it began with Peter, because it's it links with this passage in a very uh, helpful way, I think. Peter was first called to follow Jesus after a session of night fishing where he'd blanked. Now, I used to enjoy fishing many years ago when I first started in the ministry in Yorkshire. They persuaded me I needed a hobby to relax. And so I took up fly fishing. And it's fantastic. You go out fishing on a river or on a reservoir and you can kind of almost forget who you are. It's so relaxing. You forget your own name. It's wonderful. And um, there would be days where using the fishing term, fisherman's terminology, I blanked. I didn't catch anything. But you know what? I didn't really care because I'd had a great time. I wasn't like that for Peter. He's a businessman. So for him to blank on that evening, well, it's it's tough. Uh, It means no money. In fact, it means loss of money for the cost of spending that night fishing. But into that situation, this stranger on the shore says, put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And the reply is, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But then there's a curious statement from Peter. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. It seems that Peter had already encountered something of who Jesus was that makes him willing to do what probably physically in his state of weariness from fishing all night, not catching anything, he didn't naturally want to do. Now, of course, you know what happens. Peter does that. There's a huge catch of fish. And immediately the effect of this on Peter, and this is really fascinating, is not to say, brilliant, you know, I'm off to the market. We're going to make a load of money. Or isn't this wonderful? Isn't this a great thing you've done, Lord? But we're told in Luke 5 that he falls at Jesus's feet as a result of this and says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So in his calling, there is this sense of self-awareness of who he is compared to Jesus. And crucially, Peter acknowledges he is a sinful man. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Implicit within those words is the acknowledgement that Jesus is not a sinful man. Peter's first calling is rooted in this experience. But interestingly, Jesus goes on in that first calling of Peter in response to his Peter's self-awareness and awareness of his sinfulness and the purity of Christ, Jesus simply says to him, don't be afraid. It was fear that gripped Peter in the presence of Christ's holiness. And wonderfully, it's at that point Jesus commissions Peter. From now on, you will catch men. Now, there's a parallel between the calling of Peter and the restoration of Peter that really is quite striking. And we need to realize that we are three years on since that initial calling. Peter now 
so bold for Christ in the upper room becomes a public failure in Jesus's arrest. There has been given this commission from now on, you will catch men three years earlier. But what does his denial of Christ mean for that commission? What does his failure of Christ mean for his own relationship with Christ? These are the things that this passage wonderfully and helpfully addresses. And we're going to see here how Jesus restores Peter. And as we do this, I really hope this morning we will be encouraged and reminded of how the Lord Jesus restores us when we fail him when we sin, when we neglect him, when we fail to honour the promises we made to him. It was Bernard of Clairvaux, wonderful uh, medieval thinker, theologian and hymn writer, who wrote in one of his hymns, to those who fall, how kind thou art. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? How good to those who seek, to those who fall, how kind thou art. You know, sadly, sometimes as Christians, we can not always be very kind to one another, particularly when a Christian has fallen into an obvious public sin. In recent years, I've sadly had fellow pastors who've known fellow pastors who've been good friends, who've fallen into grave and serious sin. And by God's grace, my friendship has continued. But one of the things that I, I found very difficult is the lack of kindness from Christians towards them. Sometimes there is real rage and anger. And sometimes there is a shunning of individuals. Peter has failed Jesus in the most dreadful way. And yet, as Bernard of Clairvaux wrote in that hymn, to those who fall, how kind they are. Well, let's look at the kindness of the Lord Jesus. John 21, three times, verses 15, 16 and 17, Jesus speaks to Peter, but doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon, son of John. Now, it's a little point, but I think it's helpful. He reverts back to his original name. If you remember, it was at Caesarea Philippi, that moment when Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's when his name got changed. That was the seminal moment when he really gets who Jesus is. His name is changed. From now on, you, know, you will be called Peter. On this rock, I will build my church and the rock being the news that Jesus is the son of God. But now Jesus reverts to his, could we say, pre-Christian name? It's his original name and it's the name relating to the man he was before he met Jesus. Again, in this situation, in the account which Nigel read to us, self-awareness and shame are present. At his first calling, 
When Jesus first called him, he said, Lord, I am a sinful man. Now, in the awareness he'd failed Christ, he went outside and wept bitterly. On reflection, the wounds that Peter carries are necessary wounds. It's necessary that Peter is brought face to face with who he really is. That the acknowledgement he made when he was first called, Lord, I am a sinful man. That that would really come home to him on this occasion. But only that he might be brought face to face with Christ's restoring grace. Peter is going to be the great pastor in the New Testament. His epistles, you read them, they are so pastorally rich. You read in the book of Acts, you see there are times of potential crisis over ethnic tensions in the early church. And Peter is the one who is wonderfully used on that occasion alongside Paul. It seems that the Lord Jesus invites you and me to face the reality of our shame as sinners if we would know his grace. It's one of the reasons I think when it comes to serving Christ, brokenness before Christ is really essential. Uh, there seems to be almost a mysterious link between usefulness and service and sense of shame and sinfulness. Well, how does Jesus restore him and how does Jesus restore us? Very quickly, the first thing is Jesus initiates the restoration. In verse 15, we read when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, it was the elephant in the room, wasn't it? You ever had that experience where somebody has done something terrible and everybody knows it, but nobody's got the nerve or the guts to talk about it. Somebody's got to break the ice. And here it's Jesus. He breaks the ice. And it must have been terribly awkward for the rest of the disciples. It's that moment when they sort of say to each other, oh, I don't know. I think the boat needs a lick of paint or something like that. I got to get out of here. You know, I don't want to be around right now. Do you ever have that experience when you're a child, your brother or your sister was going to get told off? You know, I'm out of here. <laughs> you're on your own, mate. And there must have been a sense of that amongst the disciples. And it's almost... This real drama here, isn't there? You, it's almost like you could hear a pin drop on the sand. But it's very necessary that Peter, that Jesus initiates this. And this is the wonderful thing, you know, that, that when we're really messed up as Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ will not leave us there. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion, Paul wrote to the Philippians. And it is true. He will not leave his people in despair, though the despair may be very great. Jesus always initiates the restoration of his people. And it's a wonderful, wonderful comfort. He is not surprised by our failures. He is not surprised by our sin, but he will not leave us in our rebellion. Christ's desire is to perfect his people, his glory to be seen by us. Well, the second thing Jesus does is he speaks to the heart. He doesn't say to Peter, 
Now, Peter, what have you done? How in the world did you manage that? What were you thinking of? Where's your backbone? He doesn't say anything like that. You know what he says. He asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? He goes straight to the root of the issue. Peter's failure isn't failure of opportunity or character or context or anything like that. It's a failure in his heart. And so Jesus speaks to the issue, his heart. Do you love me? It's a relational question, isn't it? If someone says to you, do you love me? Well, they're not asking you something technical, are they? They're asking you something emotional and relational. And in fact, I would say they're making themselves quite vulnerable when they ask that question. So Jesus not only initiates Peter's restoration, he's now pursuing him in restoration by speaking to his heart. And the Lord Jesus is so tender with Peter and constructive with him. Now, Peter's a no-nonsense, hard, working-class fisherman. There's a sense where he could probably tolerate quite easily, in many ways probably would have preferred a fairly sort of robust rebuke, get it out the way, and let's press on. But Jesus does pastoral surgery on Peter that is extraordinary but it is very tender and very constructive. He puts him back together perfectly. Here is a shattered man, a broken man. And it's as if in this questioning, do you love me? And the three times that that's asked and followed by the three recommissionings, that something very powerful is happening. Some commentators, when they come to this, they they make a lot of use of the different words that's used here and all this sort of thing. And they construct this sort of argument that, that the idea is that, you know, Jesus first sort of says something like, do you like me? Do you like me a lot? Do you love me? And it's sort of escalating sense of, I, I don't particularly think that's the big deal here. I think I'm a more simple person. Listen, there were three denials. And here are three questions. Three opportunities. Do you love me? and three recommissionings. If Peter's failure to confess Christ, which was so catastrophic and has left him in this place and where he's desperately, desperately wanting to make things all right, but can't. We actually know that from the text. You know, that moment when Jesus says, bring me some fish, Peter jumps in the boat, brings the whole net with 153 fish in. You know, our Lord only wanted a few fish. Peter's desperately, desperately trying to put it right. But he can't. He can't. Only Jesus can put it right. And when we wander from Christ and when we, we sin and we mess up, we may long to find a way to put it right. But actually, in the end, only Jesus can put it right. Only he can put us right. And here he does it in the most wonderful way with Peter. He is so tender with him. He knows what this man needs. He needs reassurance. And wonderfully, Jesus can give that reassurance. Why? Because he has been raised from the dead.
the power of sin has been broken. The power of shame that goes with sin, the power of guilt, which is the result of sin, all of this can be wonderfully wiped away. And that's the tremendous thing, you see. When we fail, when we sin, here is the news. There is always a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. Every time. Why? Because of the cross. Because of what he has done. Because of the power and the victory over sin, death and hell. There is always, always, always a way back to God. And so this brings us really to our last point, having looked at Jesus initiating the restoration and speaking to the heart so tenderly and so wonderfully. The third thing, Jesus just points the way ahead. You know, this is often true of us, isn't it? That when we've sinned, when we've maybe gone through a period of backsliding, you know, when we've really messed up, you know, I don't know how to, Get back on track. Where do I go from here? Where does a, a, a broken, failed church leader, how do they consider the rest of life and the future? Well, the wonderful thing is that Jesus shows the way, he points the way, and he guides the way for Peter here. The Lord Jesus will not abandon Peter. I think it's wonderful in this passage that we see that there is no such thing as useless in Christ's hands. No one is useless. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We might think, oh, I'm, I'm useless. I've so messed up. I'm so failed. You know, it's, and I, you know, sometimes we can become so self-absorbed with this and forget that, yeah, we've messed up. We, we, we may have messed up spectacularly. But if we're in Christ's hands, which every Christian is, we're not useless, and there is still potential usefulness for us. The promise, from now on you will catch men, that was made three years previously, has not been forgotten. In response to those three questions, the commissioning comes. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter is to be a teaching pastor as a result of this. And that is precisely what he becomes. Of course, central to it all was that question, do you love me? The relational question. The one thing Jesus asks of you when you fail him, do you love me? And just to bring you back to that, you may feel how do I know if I love Jesus from my heart? How do I know? It was our Lord who said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. True Christian service never simply comes from opportunity or need or duty. Now, all those things are there and they're, they're really important. True Christian service comes from love of Christ obedience and willingness to sacrifice in service has to be driven not ever just by opportunity but it has to come from the heart and if it doesn't come from the heart it won't last so the lord jesus points the way ahead 
for Peter. You may have written yourself off, Peter. You may be gripped with shame and fear. But the reality is the Lord Jesus has not written Peter off. I think all of this comes to a head, not on the day of Pentecost, but on what I think probably was the following day. We know that the Lord used, uh, the Holy Spirit uses Peter to preach in Acts 2, a remarkable sermon, wasn't it? But it's when you get to Acts 3, that moment when Peter and John are walking along and they're going into the temple, the temple courts where the, the, the Christians were meeting. And they see this man who's been, who was born lame, crippled, we would say paraplegic today, uh, since birth. And the man looks at Peter and John and he asks them for money. He's begging. He's a professional beggar. He needs money to survive. And then uh, Luke in Acts 3 says, Peter looked straight at him, eyeballed him, as did John. And then he actually enforces it by saying, look at us. Look at us. That's worrying language from Peter. Look at me. Peter, where are you going to go with this? Have you really learned the lessons? These are Christ's lambs, his sheep. Feed my lambs, my sheep, my sheep, not yours. They belong to Christ. And yet here is Peter saying, look at us, look at me. We're told the man gave his attention, expecting something to get from them. But then we're reassured, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you. Again, it's, it's thin ice. Who are you going to point to here? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. It's only a little thing. But I think it shows us that Peter's restoration is complete. The temptation to say, hey, mate, you've hit the jackpot. Do you know who I am? I'm Peter the fisherman from Galilee, and this is John, and we've been with Jesus for three years. we got some great things to tell you. We, we were the boys. We were there, you know. Yeah, come on, let's pull up a chair. Let's talk to you about our experiences, our life experiences of the last three years. He doesn't do that. He gets out the way as quickly as he can, and he points the man to Jesus Christ. This is always the hallmark, isn't it? of how Christ deals with us in our sinful rebellion as Christians, when you've gone through a period of backsliding and known the Lord's restoration, you know who you are. Peter knew who he was. Hopeless, weak, without Christ, useless man. But he also knows that now he is in Christ. It's entirely different confidence the focus of his life is christ well there we are <clears throat> i think it's highly significant that john's gospel which is probably the most theological of all the gospels ends on this wonderful pastoral note it's the reminder that all the truth concerning who our lord and savior is and his work upon the cross is to have an effect in our lives in the most glorious tender reassuring way he came for broken failed followers like me 
and like you. And this, I trust, will be a comfort to you in your own struggles as you follow Jesus Christ.